Good morning. I invite our friends who are heading over to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those of you who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. I'd like to uh, thank all the guys who filled in last week while I was out of town. I, I know that it, it wasn't well announced what was or wasn't going on uh, while I was gone. So I heard a lot of weird speculation about <laughs> where I was and what I was doing. Uh, my wife had a business conference that she had to go to in, of all places, Las Vegas, uh, which is exactly where you think a pastor from Texas needs to land on a short vacation. Um, and so I was able to go with her and get a few days away and it was nice and it was fun and it was lovely. Uh, I, I, I actually, I was telling some people I enjoyed Las Vegas more than I thought I would because I set the bar like right here. And so it didn't take a whole lot for, for me to get over the, the bar and actually enjoy going there. I assumed the absolute worst and the not quite worst is what I got. So it was a good trip. So it was a good trip. So it was great. But glad to be back in the great Republic of Texas. So um, I'm just saying, um, you know, I, I was glad that we weren't paying for gas while we were there. Um, Five ninety nine. Yeah. So next time you're moaning and, and groaning at the pump, just remember five ninety nine. Anyway, so um uh, psalm 58 is, is a, a, a unique psalm, not necessarily in its content, but in its setup. And so I want to begin by reading verse 1. For the choir director set to Altasheth, a mechthim of David, do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness, on earth you weigh out the violence of your hands, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break the fangs of the young lions. O Lord, let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely There's a God who judges on the earth. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for uh, the, the joy that it brings. Father, thank you for the challenge that it brings. Father, thank you for the conviction that it brings. Father, we even thank you for the judgment that it brings. Father, this morning, may our hearts be lifted and elevated, delighted in the forgiveness that comes in Christ. May we mourn for those who stand under your just judgment, Father. May we long to see them transformed as we have been. But Father, even more than that, may we acknowledge your greatness and your beauty and your splendor and your glory 
as the righteous judge, as the one who through the cross not only saves, but also crushes the enemy. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, it's a very unusual thing that happens in the psalm. And it happens right at the beginning. And most of the time, we would, we would miss it because for whatever odd and strange reason, when we have had our English translations over the years, they've taken the first official verse of the Hebrew text and they've turned it into a, a subscript at the top of the page. You know, the small little letters at the beginning that we usually skip and we don't read is actually the first verse of the Hebrew text. And then, of course, there's some words there that just are transliterated from Hebrew into English that if we don't go over to the side column, if your Bible has a side column and kind of gives you a rough guesstimation of what those words mean, we wouldn't have any idea what it was saying. So a lot of times we don't read it in the first place because we don't view it as the actual first verse of the text. And then if we do read it, we don't take the time to like go, oh, what does this word actually mean? Does it give me a functional definition of this Hebrew phrase? And this is actually what makes this psalm so strange because we just read the psalm. This psalm is very in favor of God destroying his enemies. Very in favor of. In fact, right at the end, verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Like we're going to praise God for his wrath. All right. We're, and we're going to get to all that in a second. And then it takes it a step further. He, the righteous, will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Okay. Very pro-destruction of the wicked psalm that we're reading, okay? Here's what makes it weird. The importance of this introduction. It is set to, it says here, the Al-Tashheth. The literal translation of Al-Tashheth from Hebrew means, do not destroy. All right, do we see how weird this is all of a sudden? Okay, hey, I want you to write me up uh, a song. He's probably working with Asaph. It's probably who he's working with because it's for the choir director. Asaph was likely David's choir director. And so he's working with Asaph. It's set to a very um, uh, melancholy tune. That's the, 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 the mixtem that, that it's set to for David. It's uh, likely a psalm of atonement or a psalm of grievance or a psalm of repentance, a psalm of sorrow. And, it's, and he says, hey, He says, I want you, Asaph, to write me one set to the Al-Tashheth, to the concept of not destroying. And so Asaph's like, gotcha fam. Hashtag don't destroy. And then everything in the psalm is about destroying the enemy. I don't think he understood the assignment. Like, it's really weird. But it's important for us to have that in mind as we read the rest of the psalm because of how pronounced the longing to destroy the enemy is in the psalm that the actual heartbeat of the psalm isn't a longing and a desire and almost this morbid bent toward watching the enemy suffer. But rather an acknowledgement, I'm going to go ahead and do the end of the sermon first, rather an acknowledgement that God as the righteous judge will ultimately destroy his enemies, but there is still time. 
This psalm, as aggressive as it comes off, and the longing for the destruction and the crushing of God's enemies, is a hope-filled psalm. Because it starts with the notion of wanting God to not destroy them. That's the point. God, we know that if the enemy stays the way that they are, you will crush them. But this is a psalm of repentance, a psalm of atonement, a psalm of longing that the enemy need not be destroyed. And so we need to keep that in our minds. Because what can happen to us is if we just jump into the psalm in our English verse one and we skip that intro, that's actually the real verse one to this text. We might come out of this bloodthirsty. We might come out of this with a lot of angst. We we might come out of this with a lot of inappropriate self-justification of our anger and our hatred toward those that we consider our enemies, rather than having the true heart behind this psalm of, God, this is how we know it's going to be if things don't change. But what we really want is for you not to destroy. And I think we'll miss that if we're not careful this morning. So let's keep that at the front of our minds. So this introduction is incredibly important because the whole tone of this psalm is to be a tone of God. We don't want you to destroy the enemy. But this is the situation that we're facing right now. And so moving into our English first one through verse five, we see the guilt of the wicked. Now, God in his humor Knew that I was supposed to preach this last week, like that was the schedule. And I got a chance to go to Vegas. And then I get to come back and talk about the guilt of the wicked. After having been grotesquely exposed to a lot of it over the course of a week. Friends, if you don't know, there's a great deal of wickedness in our world. We get a little insulated by it. In the central part of our country. In the edge of the buckle of the Bible belt that we live in here in Texas. By the way, I, I always I know I offend my Texas friends. I know that you have almost accepted me as one of your own almost because I've been here long enough. And like I joked with Karen Lures when I first moved here, if it wasn't for my home state of Tennessee, you would still be Mexico. And so so you got to give me a pass. You got to It's just history. You got to give me a pass. OK. And so and so the the buckle of the Bible belt is Nashville, Tennessee. Just want to throw that out there. okay? and as you start to move east and west from Nashville, Tennessee, you start to move to holes and reams on the belt of the Bible belt. okay? so Texas, you're on the Bible belt. You're not the buckle, but you're on it. okay? and so there's a whole section of our country that runs across the Bible belt. And there's a lot of insulation to things depending on where you live along that running of the Bible belt. And, and, and there's some stuff that we only get exposed to if we venture out past the insulation of the Bible belt. And then if you happen to do any international traveling, then you really get an opportunity to recognize how severe things can actually be. Because some of the stuff that goes on in America is pretty mundane compared to the wretchedness and the wickedness of the rest of the world. 
And the modern society and the global influence of the gospel has actually toned down most global wickedness compared to the ancient past, like when this would have been written or when the New Testament would have occurred in ancient Roman society. Really bad stuff back then. I mean, just go through and read Corinthians and some of the other stuff about the problems that were having in the early church among converts, like new converts who were struggling with the weird paganism stuff and all the weird immorality that they had and the child abandonment on the side of mountains and all kinds of other things. Okay, our world has always been since the fall and still continues to be filled with wickedness. And friends, at the end of the day, the wicked stand guilty before God. That's what verses one through five of this text are about. The guilt of the wicked. Why are they guilty before the Lord? First, they are guilty because of their hypocrisy. Verse one. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Now, I'll say normally I'm very pro NASB translation. I think it's an excellent, wonderful, great translation. I think that they really messed that up. I don't think that that's the best way to translate what's happening there in verse one. I think instead of gods there, they should have translated that mighty men or great warriors or people of renown. Do you indeed speak righteousness? Do you indeed speak that which is true? Do you indeed declare those things that are upright? Do you indeed declare Those things that reflect the will of God, you mighty people of the earth. Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? In other words, when the wicked stand and try to speak to the world about what is righteous, it's hypocrisy. We see that regularly. Wicked people trying to give moral lessons. It's not an uncommon thing. It's not ever been an uncommon thing. People who are actually evil trying to speak good and people who you think are good who are actually speaking evil. This is the way of the world. There's this hypocrisy that comes. There's an internal and an external expression of their wickedness. Another reason why they are guilty. Verse 2. No, in heart you work unrighteousness. So from the inside you concoct and develop and, and move toward that which is not right. And then on earth out here you weigh out the violence of your hands. Another reason for their guilt is found in verse 3. There is a waywardness to them. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Now, the question is, who are they estranged from? What do they go astray from? And the answer is, is from the way of God. They are estranged from God at birth. Friends, hear me this morning, and and I can't emphasize it enough, and and if you if you take issue with the theological point that I'm about to make, I would challenge you to to read um, all of the book of Romans, the first half of Ephesians, three fourths of Hebrews, the entire gospel of John, uh, the speeches of God to Job, uh, the entire Torah of Moses, 
You know what? Just read the Bible this afternoon. Okay. Um, if you take issue, the point that I'm about to make, but friends, those who are marked as wicked before the Lord are marked as wicked before the Lord at birth. You do not become a sinner by your act of sin. You demonstrate that you are born a sinner when you start sinning. It is in your very nature. You are estranged from God at birth. Friends, when God saves us, he does not save us from our wayward actions. He saves us from our wayward selves. Our condition runs deeper than the work that we do. It is in essence who we are. We are in Adam rather than being in Christ. And that's the condition of the wicked. Notice it says that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They're estranged from God from the womb. They speak lies and they go astray from birth from the very beginning. And therefore there's guilt to be had. And the psalmist here indicates that they will not be turned back. That without some sort, remember, this is in the context of the hopefulness of God not destroying as found in the actual verse one, the Al-Tashheth, the idea of do not destroy them. There is this notion that left as they are, they will not be turned back. Verse four, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, yet they are deaf like a cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers. Or a skillful caster of spells. What an awful job that that would be. I know you guys have seen the footage of it. Some of you may have actually seen it in person. But you know you get those snake charmer guys. And those really poisonous snakes. Usually the king cobra. And so those really dangerous snakes. And the guy's blowing the thing. And it's kind of dancing to it. And it seems to have it like you know totally mystified. While he's doing the stuff that he's doing. Can, Can you imagine if that snake couldn't hear him or feel those vibrations. Wow, that guy would have a really bad day at work. Like, I mean, you know, this is how the psalmist views those who are in their state of wickedness. They are deaf to the call to have their lives transformed. And friends, hear me this morning. Apart from an intervention of God, the miraculous grace of God, the delivering power of God himself, God removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, God coming in and giving life where there was death, giving sight where there was spiritual blindness, giving hearing where there was spiritual death, removing our spiritual leprosy and cleansing us from the inside out. We too would be left in a state of deafness to the gospel and its transforming power. God must save us. And this, under the context of the Al-Tasheth, the do not destroy, is heart-wrenching what is being sung here in the psalm. There is a heart-breaking, there's a reason why it's set to the miktem. There's a reason why it is set to this this tone of of uh, almost enigmatic or melancholy type psalm. 
Because David's heart is broken that the enemies of God, those who should be in covenant with God, but are not in covenant with God. He is heartbroken that their ears remain deaf to the work of God in their lives. Friends, this is very different than how the psalm sounds if you don't read that first verse. Because if you leave that first real verse out and you just jump right into our English verse one, it just seems like David is so gung ho for his enemies to just die. Just ready for him to die. And that is not at all the vibe that David is trying to express with this psalm. His heart is wrenching that these enemies of God are deaf. They are blind to their condition. They do not see the danger that they are in. And so then we move to verse 6. And there now makes a transition in David's psalm for the desire for the destruction of the wicked. There is a call for God's judgment on them to take place. And you say, well, that seems not to be in keeping with this desire for them not to be destroyed. But let's walk it through and let's see. Oh, God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of young lions, O oh Lord. And there's a point to be made, but I want to walk through all of them so that the point can be made holistically. Verse 7. Basically, verse 7 is a, is a call for the wicked to become useless and ineffective. Notice, let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be like headless shafts. Verse 8, let their life be futile and wasted. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes along, like miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Sweep them away before your pots can feel the fire of thorns. He will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. All of these in this desire for their destruction and this desire for their judgment All of these are not for, until you get to verse 9, all of these are not for an ultimate judgment or an ending of their life. Rather, David is longing for the wicked to stop being effective in their wickedness. Notice the metaphors that he's using. Shatter their teeth in their mouth. If you have all of your teeth broken out of your mouth, do you die? No. But things are going to be really hard for you to do. It's going to be hard for you to eat. It's actually going to be kind of hard for you to talk. Shocking how much you actually bounce your tongue off of your teeth to form words. You're going to become very ineffective in a lot of things that are really important in life. If you happen to be a lion and you have all of your teeth knocked out, you become incredibly ineffective. He could scratch you to death with those massive paws, but he can't maul you to death because he doesn't have any teeth anymore. In other words, he can't wreak the same sort of destruction that he's been wreaking. 
Let them become useless and ineffective. If you're watering a garden and all of your water keeps running off and not staying on the soil that you're watering, it's ineffective water. If you have arrows, but none of them have actual uh, uh, heads on the shafts, you're just shooting sticks. It's very ineffective. There's a longing for a longing for the wicked to become ineffective. God, they are they are they are they are reaping a harvest of villainy and tyranny and wretchedness in this world. And I don't want them to be able to keep doing that. I want it to stop. I want their wickedness to become ineffective. They are bringing others into their wickedness. Let their lives be wasted like a snail or a miscarriage. Very extreme language that's being used here. But what David is desiring is not necessarily their ultimate destruction. What he's desiring is that their wicked lives are ineffective in this world. You say, well, Philip, how can you say that? Because this language is so severe because of the verse one introduction. I want to set this psalm to the idea of do not destroy. We are not allowed to read this psalm as if David is desiring the ultimate destruction of his enemies because he made it very clear from the outset That is not what I want. You say, Philip, why are you emphasizing that so aggressively this morning? Because I'm afraid that many of us, if we're honest, when we look around at the landscape of of moral wickedness, when we look at the debauchery that exists in our world, when we look at how, how wayward and sideways and confused and frustrated and, and anti-covenantal reality our, our society has become, even in many places that call themselves churches. I'm worried that many of us, if we're not careful, our heartbeat, though we might not say it out loud, is, man, God would just be better off if you just wiped those people out. God, be better off if you just judge those people now. God, be better off if you just get rid of those people. Like Again, we might not ever express that. Might not ever say that. Might not ever be brazen enough to vocalize that. But there just seems to be among evangelical Christians this tension of, God, just hurry up and judge these people. Just hurry up and do this thing. And the problem with that is that for those of us who still draw breath, the gospel does not allow us to have that attitude. We should know the end game for the wicked. We should be very aware of what is going to happen to them. But we should also be reminded, we should also remember, as Paul calls to various churches in the New Testament, remember, brothers, what you were before you were called. Praise be to God. He opened my eyes. 
And he showed me the glory of Christ. And he removed my heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh. And he took away my spiritual blindness and he gave to me spiritual sight. And in the place of the great death that was there, he gave me new life in Christ. And my longing should be, dear God, show that same kindness to the wretch who was just like I was. While there is still time for him. Friends, that's the heartbeat of this psalm. This psalm is a longing for repentance. And notice how it closes. Notice how it closes. In verses 10 and 11, there's a delight of the righteous for this warning. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Friends, this calls to mind this incredible picture in the New Testament of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Why was it That Christ was able to wash his disciples feet. What was that a picture of in the New Testament? Well, first, it was a picture of his servanthood because servants were the ones who did the foot washing in the New Testament. But it was also a picture of cleansing them. Making them clean. Their feet being the kind that walk the right way. Their feet being the kind that walk the right path. Their feet not going off to a path of destruction. And how is it, how could it be that Christ was able to wash his disciples' feet in that metaphorical, theological, cleansing way because of the blood he was about to shed? Yes, he washed their feet with water. But ultimately, Jesus washed his disciples' feet with his own blood, the blood of the vengeance and the wrath of God that fell on him rather than on them. They'll see the vengeance and they'll rejoice. Why would we rejoice when we see the wrath of God? Friends, we not only rejoice ultimately one day because of God's righteous judgment on the wicked. The scripture makes it very clear that we will do that. But friends, the gospel, one of the central themes of the gospel that we often ignore, that we often turn a blind eye to, that we often sweep under the rug, is that friends, we rejoice when we see the vengeance of the father falling on the son rather than on us. That's the gospel. And Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was declared wicked for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It says in the scripture that on the cross, Jesus Christ cried out to the father asking why he had forsaken him. It says that the world fell dark. Jesus 
sweating drops of blood, asking if there was a different way, understanding the cup of the wrath of God that would be falling on him, understanding that 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 there would be some sort of cosmic separation between the first and second person of the Trinity because the second person of the Trinity was going to take the weight of the sins of all of his people and God would, the Father would pour his wrath out on God the Son that his people might be redeemed. We washed our feet in the blood of the wicked. Because Jesus Christ became that for us. Our sins, holistically as a community of faith, placed on the person of Jesus Christ so that we might receive His righteousness because He, in exchange, took on our wretched wickedness. It's beautiful. And David has set this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the theme of do not destroy because this, my friends, is a gospel psalm. If you can narrow it down to one thing, it gets closed here in verse 11. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. If you could narrow it down to one great call. David is declaring in advance the entire message of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry in this psalm. It is set to the theme of do not destroy. And the entire psalm is about the destruction of the wicked if they do not repent. What was the message of Christ throughout his earthly ministry? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what David is crying out. He's saying, God, I know. The wicked deserve your justice. I know that those who are unrighteous deserve your wrath. I know. That left as they are, they will come under the weight of your fury. God, do not destroy them. Mercifully grant them repentance. And friend, my question to you this morning, question myself. When you consider those around you who are still living full out in their wickedness. Clearly in a state of unrepentance, clearly in a state of separation from Christ. What is the longing of your heart? What is the longing of my heart? Do I look and do I see and do I say, God, just sweep them away? Or do I come to understand that God is going to sweep them away if they remain in the condition that they are in? But there should be a heart cry for all who've experienced the grace of God. God, do not destroy them. Because friends, that is the entire tone of this psalm. He sent this over to Asaph, his choir director, and he said, hey, listen. 
I want you to write a psalm about the destruction of the wicked. And somehow I want you to set it up where people understand that I don't actually want the wicked to be destroyed, but I want them to repent. But I want people to know that if the wicked don't repent, they will be destroyed. Think you can manage that? And Asaph beautifully, the choir director of David, beautifully structured for us a psalm warning us of the dangers of our sin, yet calling us to repent and turn back to God. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the cry of the cross of Jesus Christ. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Father, thank you for this psalm. Father, thank you for its complexity. Father, thank you for its depth. Father, thank you for its uniqueness. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have placed, even in the midst of a great judgment psalm, that beautiful thread of scarlet mercy. Father, thank you that this was set to the Al-Tesheth, to the tune of not being destroyed. Father, thank you that in our lives you have not destroyed us, but rather have saved us. Father, when we look out and we see the masses of people who have not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, let the longing of our heart be, Father, do not destroy them. Father, Save them by your mercy. Father, if there are those here this morning. Who are still set apart from Christ in the hardness of their heart. Father, open their eyes. Unstop their ears. Remove the heart of stone. Give life to them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.